Hello, this is Eyes for Ears, your ophthalmology OCAPS and Board Review podcast. This is your host, Ben Young. Andrew Pau is still out of the country, saving eyes in a foreign land. So we welcome back Amanda Redfern. Thanks for having me back, Ben. Remember, this podcast is for educational purposes only and not to diagnose that weird thing on your eye. We're ophthalmology residents who figure that reviewing for OCAPs, the boards, or clinic is better when you don't have to do it alone. Each week, we review a high-yield topic and talk about the why and the how. This week is corneal dystrophies part two. Yes, it's back for more. And then ectasias too. Oh yes, those two. So to review, last time we left off talking about most of the corneal dystrophies that affect the anterior stroma, the epithelium, and all the way down to the posterior stroma. So today we're going to talk about the most posterior of the corneal dystrophies, the ones that affect decimase and the endothelium. And we're also going to do corneal ectasias. So Ben, I saw a patient the other day who came into clinic complaining that his vision is always blurry in the morning, but then it clears up later in the day. What is one possible cause of this? Yeah, so that's amaurosis fugax. So you send them to the ED right away, get them a whole stroke workup, MRI, admit them for... um, Ben, this, uh, this fever is really killing you. Oh, yeah, maybe I should answer the thing. If you notice my voice is different, I'm kind of sick, but we are freaking dedicated to medical education and not even laryngitis can stop us. But if a skilled ENT is out there that can help fix my voice, please, God, it hurts. So what 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 is causing your patient's problem, Dr. Redfern? So this patient actually had Fuchs endothelial corneal dystrophy. So it's the most common endothelial corneal dystrophy that you'll see. So on exam... What you see is gutte on the endothelium, and it can have this beaten metal appearance. Eventually, as you lose endothelial cell function, you start to get swelling in the cornea. And so the whole cornea can eventually be affected. Classically, this is worse in the morning because the eyelids are closed all night, and then the cornea tends to swell up. But it gets better throughout the day as your eyes are open and exposed to air, and the cornea essentially desiccates. And in doing so, it gets a little bit more clear. And that's also why one of the more conservative treatments that you want to do, something like Miro, which is just hypertonic saline, can help because that also helps to desiccate the more anterior stroma and the cornea to help dry it out and reduce the edema. So Ben, what's a test that you can do in clinic if you're worried about Fuchs endothelial dystrophy? You can do specular microscopy. That is an imaging technique that can look at the endothelium. The way it does is by using light that comes off axis. The things that you're looking for on spec, which is what the cool kids call specular microscopy, are variation in the endothelial cell size and shape. That would cause variations in polymegathism and pleomorphism, respectively. So just to give you a little bit of physiology of the endothelial cells again, The endothelial cell's purpose is to help pump water out of the cornea to bring it back to 78% water content, which is an important number to know for OCAPs or board review. And the cornea needs to be at this percentage of hydration to, to maintain its clarity. That's one of the four factors that leads to corneal clarity. The, now, the endothelial cells are packed like hexagons, and they're hexagons for the same reason that honeycombs are made of hexagons, because that's the um, most efficient packing that nature can do on a planar surface. So if you have like a bunch of bubbles on a surface, if you've ever done that, you 
kind of pack them together, they also turn into hexagons for the same reason. When you have something like Fuchs dystrophy that varies the size and shape of those hexagons, it reduces their uh, overall efficiency and how well they work, which eventually leads to increases in the corneal hydration above 78%, which gives you the edema that we're going to talk about in a bit. Now, this finding on spec is also reflected in the pathology. Like if you take a past slide, then you'll also see variations or gaps where the endothelial cells should be. Another finding that you can see is that Decimase membrane can be thickened, specifically the posterior non-banded, specifically the posterior non-banded part of um, Decimase membrane, because that's the part that continues to thicken over time, because the endothelium continues to add tissue to Decimase membrane. That's compared to the anterior banded part of Decimase membrane, which does not thicken over time. And a one final anatomy thing for OCAPS is that um, if you have to remember the thicknesses of the different layers, Decimase membrane um, starts at about three microns in size when you're born and then increases to around 10, um, you know, when you're later in life. So it goes from about three to 10 compared to something like... When you have more life experience. When you have, as as you gain wisdom, so does your posterior band or non posterior non-banded aspect of your Decimase membrane. And then you already mentioned for treatment, conservatively, we start out with Miro, but if that's not working and you really lost a lot of endothelial cell function and your cornea is getting very cloudy, you can do surgery for this. Uh, it used to be back in the old days, we do PKs or penetrating keratoplasties, but technology has come much further. Now we do endothelial keratoplasties, either a DSEC, which is a decimase stripping automated endothelial keratoplasty, or a DMEC, which is a desimase membrane endothelial keratoplasty. What's the difference between them? Oh, man, isn't that a different podcast? Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the difference between the two keratoplasties is the thickness of the graft that you end up placing there and a little bit of surgical technique with... So a DSEC with an S. The S doesn't stand for stroma, but you can remember... If it helps you remember, you can think of it as include some stroma. So both DSEC and DMEC take away the endothelium and decimase membrane, and DSEC also has some posterior stroma with it. That helps it to retain its shape, and it makes it a, you know, quote-unquote, technically easier surgery to do. So when you insert a DSEC, it will maintain its shape, and it's a bit easier to put in the position from where you stripped the original decimase membrane and endothelium. DMEC where the M stands for just membrane, only has decimase membrane and endothelium. So it's way floppier and it's harder to place. However, the benefit is they typically have better refractive outcomes after because there's not this extra tissue that would change the refractive power of the cornea. If you've ever seen a DMAC, you'll see that they're pretty technically challenging. However, you get the transplant, it has to be folded up into a taco. Then you insert that taco into the anterior chamber, and then you have to untaco it while it's in the eye so that it can lay flat against the um, against the posterior stroma and then stick there. That is just more challenging. It's harder to get the bubble in, in the right place, but in theory, it comes out with better refractive outcomes. So if you can do it, then a lot of surgeons are doing DMEC nowadays. But that's not to say it's fundamentally superior. Also, in order to tell which orientation the graft is in, because sometimes it gets confusing after you've rolled it up and you put it in there, a lot of them are stamped with the letter S. And in cornea, S is for smart. Whereas some of you may have heard in cataract surgery and lens implantation, uh, S is for stupid. 
What is, why is that stupid in cataract surgery? Because you want the haptics oriented in a backwards S to know that it is in the correct position or flipped in the correct direction. Yeah, very classic mistake that residents can make. Speaking of cataract surgery, you know, oftentimes people with fuchs need cataract surgery as everyone eventually needs cataract surgery. There's a couple indicators that suggest that someone is at higher risk for corneal decompensation after cataract surgery. So in cataract surgery, when you deliver energy in the anterior chamber, you can cause injury to the endothelium. Oftentimes it recovers, but if you have fuchs, basically you already have a baseline level of injury to the endothelium, then uh, cataract surgery can cause it to completely decompensate to the point where they don't recover um, the function of the endothelium and they'll end up needing a transplant. There's three factors to remember that indicate that someone is at high risk for needing a endothelial transplant after cataract surgery, and those are, drumroll please, drumroll, give me the, thank you, okay, okay, you just stop, because you can't hear it, thank you. <laughs> so if, if, there, if there's a specular microscopy shows a cell count less than 1,000, if they have increased corneal thickness and that threshold is 650 microns, or if they have epithelial edema, which typically occurs at around 700 microns or more, but um, you know that's another sign if they have epithelial edema, then those are very poor prognostic, prognostic indicators for endothelial function after cataract surgery. Regardless, it's important to counsel people on this. And in order to counsel them, this brings us to back to the beginning. Always check for those gute. So you know to counsel your patients on their additional risk for corneal decompensation after cataract surgery. Okay. Moving on. Moving on. So Ben, you're in cornea clinic again, and you're doing a very thorough cornea exam, looking at every layer of the cornea, and you notice these weird lines going across the posterior surface of the cornea, kind of like snail tracks. What are you thinking of? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's uh, ice syndrome. So In both eyes? Huh. Oh, okay. So we're talking about posterior polymorphous corneal dystrophy. A common way that this is tested and, you know, can be encountered clinically is that it kind of appears like a bilateral ice syndrome, which is an corneal endothelial syndrome. There's three types of those. That is for another podcast. But the features of PPMD, which is the abbreviation of posterior polymorphous corneal dystrophy, are um, one, it's bilateral. So that's the, a key thing to help you differentiate it from ice syndrome. Two, it has those endothelial vesicles that are classically called snail tracks that Amanda just alluded to. Now, Amanda, there's certain inheritance pattern with this too, right? As with most of the corneal dystrophies that we've been discussing, it's autosomal dominant. Unlike ice, which is... Sporadic and related, often related to some history of trauma. Right. Typically. And then there's one more feature of PPMD that's kind of similar to ICE syndromes. What would that be, Amanda? Glaucoma? Glaucoma. Tienes de glaucoma? I don't know what that means. <laughs> you have glaucoma. We oh have, my goodness. Is... So to summarize, PPMD is, you can think of it as a bilateral condition that's autosomal dominant. Uh, that is... On the cornea, it can have either endothelial vesicles or snail tracks, or the two ways to describe the same finding, and they have glaucoma, or they are elevated risk for glaucoma in either an open or closed angle um, configuration. 
Okay, that's that's PPMD. It's real. It's like you, you'll see it in clinic. It's not one of those super rare things where you see one in your career. So it's a legit thing. But speaking of super rare things, there's one posterior corneal dystrophy that really mainly affects infants. What is that called, Amanda? Congenital hereditary endothelial dystrophy. Right. So this one's actually special because it's one of the few autosomal recessive dystrophies. So my mnemonic for the autosomal recessive corneal dystrophies is, are many children gelatinous? So the R is for autosomal recessive. Many, or M, is for macular. Children is for CHED or CHED. And gelatinous is, of course, gelatinous drop-like dystrophy. Yeah, I really like that. Thanks for sharing. So the coming back to CHED, the, the pathophysiology here is that there's this poor development of the endothelium in general. They have diffuse thickening of decimase membrane instead. And as you can expect, this leads to marked corneal edema. And because of how light will diffract through the cornea, though, it can appear slightly blue for the same reason that the sky can look kind of blue. So how is CHED different from congenital hereditary stromal dystrophy, Ben? All right. One, one reason is that CHSD, congenital hereditary stromal dystrophy, is like extremely rare. There's only a couple families that have reported to have it. Another kind of physical finding that's different between the two is that CHED will have epithelial edema compared to CHSD, which will just kind of have that kind of thickened cornea. Yeah, and you know, one way to remember that is CHSD, the stromal, congenital stromal dystrophy, doesn't actually cause edema, it just causes opacity within the stroma. In some texts or some reports, they claim that CHSD does not have thickening, but there's reports that show that they can have uh, corneal thickening. So you, you don't have, you know, I wouldn't go by that, but you can go by ep- the epithelial edema. It, you know, that's basically it with like CHED, but these are patients that have a white cornea. There is a, pretty lengthy differential for white corneas in newborns or in infants. But there's a famous mnemonic for it that we'll uh, repeat with you today. Amanda, hit it. Gee, I'm stumped. What could you be talking about? That's that's funny. You tried to pass it back to me, but you're not going to escape. <laughs> so the mnemonic is stumped. So S stands for sclerocornea, T for trauma, U for ulcer, M for metabolic or mucopolysaccharide. Metabolic or mucopolysaccharidoid. This is why you passed up. <laughs> <laughs> Metabolic or mucopolysaccharidosis. Peter's anomaly is P, and E is endothelial for CHED, and lastly D is dermoid. You could also put CHSD in there too, but that's pretty rare. But that, that that's you know. Fairly high yield. And it's, you know, I, I don't know what about your institution, but we get this consult, you know, a couple of times a year. So it's always good to kind of run through the whole list of possibilities so you know what kind of test to get. Now, as promised, we've finished those dystrophies and it's time to move on to corneal ectasias. Ben, what's the most common corneal ectasia? It's keratoconus. It's, a, it's, it's very common, you know. Um, it affects a lot of patients out there. It usually starts when they're in puberty. Um, that's when that might not be when people are initially diagnosed, but that's usually when the disease is found to start. And it progresses until people are in their 40s, maybe their early 50s, when the progression of the disease usually slows down. But when I say progression, what 
What does that mean, Amanda? What, um, what is the kind of pathology of this disease? Basically, in this disease, you get thinning of the corneal stroma. And as it thins, you can get that kind of inferior steepening of the cornea. On pathology, you will first see fragmentations or breaks in Bowman's layer. As the disease progresses, you get folds or breaks in Desimé's membrane, which then can lead to acute corneal high drops, and patients will come in with acutely blurry vision and eye pain. Having episodes of these acute corneal high drops can lead to apical scarring. You know, in summary, the the cornea, the keratoconus, becomes more cone-like, so keratoconus. There's a few systemic associations with it. Some of these associations can kind of be remembered as diseases where you rub your eyes more frequently. Now, there's never actually been an association that eye rubbing actually causes keratoconus. Like if you take your average person and you rub their eyes a lot, there's not actually evidence that that causes keratoconus, but perhaps there's some kind of intrinsic weakening of the stroma that eventually results in keratoconus in these patients. So you can remember these conditions as ones that are related to eye rubbing, though don't strictly remember the eye rubbing as the actual mechanism of keratoconus. And those conditions are, here, I'll give you the germ roll this time. Okay. Vernal keratoconus. Oh, whoa, whoa. Do you, do you keep, do you keep germ rolling through an announcement? Ben, you know better than this. Okay, I probably shouldn't journal directly on the stand that the microphone is sitting on. This might sound terrible, but okay, hit it. So, we have vernal keratoconjunctivitis, floppy eyelids, atopy, sleep apnea, and Down syndrome. Right, and then there's also conditions that kind of systemically results in dysgenesis of connective tissue. Those include... Ehlers Danlos, osteogenesis imperfecta, conditions related to mitral valve prolapse, and then and sleep apnea. And because you probably won't go over this in another episode, remember sleep apnea is related as well to floppy eyelids. Okay, so those are things to look for in keratoconus. At least um, those are associations. Associations to look for. There are like four classic named signs with keratoconus that um, definitely can come up on tests. Do you want to do a one-off thing to like yeah. talk about them? Okay. I'll start. Munson well, sign. What's that? So that is when you have the patient look downward. And basically, the cone shape of the cornea ends up causing a V shape in the lid, the lower lid, as they look down. This is a later sign, though. So if you're looking for early keratoconus, uh, you won't see this. Yeah, good luck. No, okay, that was too antagonistic. Another sign is a flusher ring. So don't confuse this with a Kaiser flusher ring, which is that golden ring or copper colored ring that we learn about that's associated with Wilson's disease. This is a instead an iron ring that's deposited on the surface of the cornea around the cone and keratoconus. The idea is that anywhere you have tear stasis, you can have an iron deposition ring eventually. And because of the change curvature at the cone of keratoconus, there's more tear stasis there. So you're left with this brown ring that's there. Another sign is void striae, which are these vertical striae on the posterior surface of the cornea. One way to differentiate void striae from decimase folds is by applying pressure to the globe. When you do this, void striae will disappear versus decimase folds, they stay there. You know, you can think of void striae as kind of like wrinkles. 
Decimase membrane, whereas decimase folds are just from the thickening of um, decimase, and it kind of you know it doesn't have anywhere to go, so it 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 kind of rolls inwards. So decimase folds, if it's thickening, you're not going to get rid of that by pushing on the globe. But void series are wrinkles, so you know just like if you have a wrinkly piece of ceram wrap, you stretch it out, the wrinkles go away. So, so Ben, what's uh, another sign? Oh God. Okay, the the last sign is Rizzuti sign. That's where you shine a like a pen light on the temporal aspect of the cornea, and then you'll get a conical reflection on the nasal side. So you like shine a light on one side, and you'll see this kind of like cone-like shaped um, reflection on the nasal side, on the opposite side of where your light's coming from. Um, there's one more thing that you can see on retinoscopy, if you ever do that for one of these patients. What does that look like? Amanda? It looks like scissors. One more feature of keratoconus that is very important to know about is acute high drops. That's where you have enough deformation of the cornea that eventually decimase breaks. And when it breaks and there's no longer that barrier between the aqueous and the cornea, the cornea can rapidly hydrate. So it becomes pretty rapidly whitens. There's a lot of pain associated with it. And when you have enough episodes of this, it leaves scarring, just like prolonged corneal edema can leave scarring. This acute corneal edema can eventually cause scarring too. Clinically, something to look out for is if you're refracting a patient and they're really hard to refract, or if they have a really high amount of astigmatism, you should be suspicious for keratoconus, especially if you know you're fairly good at refracting people by now. So in terms of treatment for these folks, we're not really going to go into a lot of detail, but just know that one thing you can do, especially to help with that irregular astigmatism, is to use contact lenses. Another thing you can do is corneal cross-linking, and this is more aimed at people who are young, because as we talked about earlier, usually starts when you're young during puberty and progresses to about your 40s. So if someone was progressing quickly, but they weren't going to get to their 40s for a while, you might consider cross-linking to slow down that the progression of the disease. But this does not this yeah. does not reverse the uh, damage that's already been done. Finally, if they're really unhappy with their vision or they've had many episodes of high drops, you could do a penetrating keratoplasty. And the and the most common indication for penetrating keratoplasty in the United States is keratoconus. So. We forgot to talk about getting corneal topography. We did. Let's talk about that. So if you see a patient where you're having a difficult time refracting them and you notice they have a lot of astigmatism, you may want to get a corneal topography. And what would you see on that corneal topography? Right. You'd see inferior steepening because, as we said, the cone is generally fairly central but inferiorly – but but it's inferior – You can also calculate what they call an IS ratio. What that is is inferior to superior power ratio. If that ratio is greater than 1.4, then that's kind of your cutoff from normal, and that's indication they have a corneolectasia like keratoconus. Oh, and then the last thing is... Regular stigmatism should have a bow tie pattern shape. Um, so if there is some pattern that violates the pattern of bow tie, that's another indication they may have something like a nictasia or, or another cause of regular stigmatism. Okay. Speaking of another ectasia, so in keratoconus, the protrusion of the cornea is at the area of thinning. But there's another condition where the cornea can protrude above the band of thinning. What's that one called, Amanda? That's pellucid marginal degeneration. So I like to remember this one as the beer belly one because that's what it looks like from the side view. 
you get a protrusion of the cornea above the band of thinning. And then classically on topography, it has not a bow tie appearance, but a... A crab claw appearance. So it's like a crab claw coming from underneath to crab the, the cornea. And, you know, you may wonder whether or not these patients have acute high drops. It's been reported, but it's not like a kind of a classic finding in the in Pellucid, like in keratoconus. That said, Pellucid's also much rarer, so. Speaking that. of rare corneal lactasias, what about keratoglobus? Right, the, the rarest of the corneal lactasias. So, I mean, as the name implies, the difference between keratoglobus and keratoconus is that whereas keratoconus looks like a cone, keratoglobus is globular. It's like the whole thing is, um, is there's generalized thinning. There's not just like an apical thinning, like one point of thinning, but the whole thing is thinned out. So because of that, you're not going to see those iron lines or stress lines like we did in keratoconus. Right. And compared to keratoconus, this typically presents at birth. But that doesn't mean it's a, it's not a hereditary condition. But unlike keratoconus, which takes time to develop because it's like probably one point of thinning that gets worse and worse over time, keratoglobus are just born with a overall thinned cornea. Keratoglobus can be associated with Ehlers-Danlos, and they may actually also present with a blue sclera. They can also get bone and tooth fractures, which is likely caused by a defect in collagen synthesis. On pathology, it's similar to keratoconus, uh, except that you, they can actually have an absent Bowman's layer as opposed to just a fragmented Bowman's layer. And Amanda, of the three ectasias we talked about, which one of them is most susceptible to just frank rupture? So that would be keratoglobus. It's thin all over and you really don't want to poke it. So that's it. Those are all the corneal dystrophies. We talked about the three posterior corneal dystrophies in this episode. Fuchs endothelial dystrophy, PPMD, which is posterior polymorphous corneal dystrophy, and CHED, congenital hereditary endothelial dystrophy. So we also talked about the three corneal lactasias. We have keratoconus, pellucid marginal degeneration, and keratoglobus. And the differences in these three are where the thinning is in relation to the ectasia. So in keratoconus, the thinning, it is thinnest at the apex, whereas in pellucid, the thinning is just inferior to the protrusion. And then in keratoglobus, you're just thin all over. Yeah, it doesn't even matter. And that's it. Next week, we're going to come back with part two of nystagmus. If you like what you heard, then you can follow us on Twitter at Eyes4Ears with the number four. It also helps to rate and review us on iTunes or whichever podcast platform you use to listen to. As always, credit to Andrew Powell for music and website production. And thank you to our listeners for showing your support by listening. Hopefully next week, my voice will be back and I will not sound like this. But until next time, bye. Bye. Hello, welcome to Eyes for Ears, your ophthalmology OCAP support of your podcast. This is not what? working for you. All right, a one and a two and hello. All right, hold, hold, Ben hold. is going sit, through puberty. Sit, 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 sit tight, dear listeners. Sit tight. We're gonna get that. 
and a one and a two and a hello. <laughs> this is 